Good morning. If, if you may remember, a couple of months ago, we asked for uh, used guitars or, or new guitars, or, or we were going to buy some guitars for our refugee ministry. And I haven't had a chance to publicly give an update on that and thank those of you who gave guitars. Uh, we've, we've had about eight or ten guys that have been learning, and they've been doing fairly well. Uh, we've had a couple that have dropped out after they learned that they were not that musically talented and didn't feel like that's what they wanted to do, but we've had several that, have, that are going really well. We've never, well, we haven't had live worship uh, like a band uh, for our, our refugee ministry for seven or eight years, and we're hoping by the end of this year we might actually have some guys skilled enough that we can have live worship. Uh, we've been doing it off YouTube, uh, which is working, but uh, it would be nice to have live music. So I just want to thank you guys, those of you who donated the guitars, it's been working very well. So today, uh, as we get into the sermon, we're going to be continuing our look at the, the um, Sermon on the Mount from Matthew, uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 7, and we're going to talk about asking, seeking, and knocking. And uh, I want to start out with a story from my childhood. Uh, when I was a child, I would often go to my grandparents' house, and you know, when I'd knock on the door, they would always open it, and they were very happy to see me. They'd give me big hugs, and uh, usually then my grandfather would take us out back, and he would take us to his, he had this shed back then, and, and he had these uh, Coke bottles, those big, hard glass Coke bottles, if you guys, any of you guys remember that, and he had a little place on the wall where he had a bottle opener, and he would take us over there and show us how to use the bottle opener, and we would sit down on the steps with him and drink our Coke, and that's one of my favorite childhood memories of my grandfather. Uh, one day, my grandfather said, hey, you're, you're like eight or nine years old, and I think it's time for you to learn to rabbit hunt. Because in our area, hunting was a big deal. Our family hunted. So, being an eight-year-old, I was thrilled. I was like, oh, yeah, do I get to hold the gun? He said, no, 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 I'll hold the gun, but you're going to go with me. And we'll go get a dog from the neighbor's house, and we will get the dog to chase the rabbit, and when the rabbit comes around, I'll shoot it. For a kid, eight-year-old kid, some of you guys might think this is cruel, but for an eight-year-old kid, this sounded like a lot of fun. So, uh, my grandfather lives on the edge of a swamp. He's on reclaimed land, actually. It's dry where he lives, but behind him, it's not. And the neighbors who lived behind him were in the swamp, and they were moonshiners. That means they, uh, they were making illegal whiskey, and they had all been in jail for this at one time or another. They were a really rough crowd. So, they had the dogs. And so as we got ready to go rabbit hunting, my grandfather said, okay, I'll go back and get the dog. And I said, no, 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 I'll go get the dog. I, that sounds really fun. I'll go get the dog. He said, okay, you go get the dog. Are you sure? I said, yes, I'll get the dog. So I walked back to the neighbor's house, and it's the epitome of what you would think of as a rundown, ramshackled. Things are falling off their house. It's all dirt. There are old cars sitting in the mud. Uh, the dogs are in the mud. They're staked. He's got three or four dogs. They're all barking at me. And I go up to this, this uh, screen door, and I knock on the door. I'm very excited. And this huge, massive guy comes to the door. And he's got hair everywhere. He's got this long beard. He's got the pot belly. He's got the dirty shirt. Um, he is a hillbilly. And he looks at me, and he kind of leans up against the doorpost, and he said, what do you want, boy? And I said, uh, and at that point, my mouth has dropped open. At, you know, eight-year-old looking at this huge, massive guy who's really rough. I said, uh, I, uh, I've come for your dog. Uh, my, um, like my grandfather said I should get your dog, and uh, yeah. And he literally, he looked at me, and he said, 
I don't think we have anything that belongs to you. And he slammed the door, and he walked away. And as a kid, you know, I was scared to death. This guy has just slammed the door. I never had anything happen like that before. I dropped my head. I turned around. I walked back to my grandfather, and I said, he said no. (laughs) My grandfather said, okay, just wait. So my grandfather said, do you want to come with me? And I said, no, I do not want to come with you. So he goes, and he gets the dog, brings the dog back. Well, that dog... I don't think that dog's ever caught a rabbit. We saw nothing that day. That was my one and only rabbit hunting trip, and we didn't see anything. It was kind of like that Elvis song, you know, about the hound dog. You ain't never caught a rabbit, and you ain't no friend of mine. Well, it was like that. You know, when we look at God, some people see God as that big grizzly guy who's, you know, standing at the door. When you knock on the door, he's like, nope, nope, you're not coming in here. You're not getting anything. But I think God, you know, I don't like the picture of God as the big grandfather, but in a lot of ways, God's more like my grandfather. He's there with a welcoming hug. He wants you to walk through that door, and he wants to give you good things. We don't have to fear him like I feared that guy. We don't have to fear it when we come before God. God wants to give us good things. When we look at the Sermon on the Mount, it's a portrait of citizens of the kingdom, Jesus said in Matthew 5.20, he said, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were doing all kinds of things in the law. They were trying to win their salvation by doing all these things. Now, if we have to do more than they do, that means salvation is impossible for us. But what what Jesus is really saying on the Sermon on the Mount is not that you have to do much more of these things, but there needs to be a change in your character, and the way you view the world. We're supposed to reflect the characteristics of Jesus in our lives. We are supposed to become a portrait of who he is, not those who are just out to follow the law like the, the Pharisees for the sake of maybe winning our own salvation, but for the sake of knowing and being part of the, knowing Jesus and being part of the kingdom, a citizen. So as, we look to, as we've looked through the Sermon on the Mount, we've gone through the Beatitudes, blessed are those who... We've looked at salt and light, being salt and light, uh, making a real difference in the world. Jesus as the fulfillment of the law, murder and anger, adultery and divorce, swearing and oaths, revenge, charitable deeds, prayer and fasting, materialism, anxiety, judging others, that was last week, then asking, seeking, and knocking today. We're about at the end, so next is going to be the golden rule next week, and then exhortations to enter the kingdom. So we're getting close to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. I called it, uh, when I first typed this up, my wife saw it, and I called it the Sermon on the Mound, if you know the difference between Sermon on the Mount and Sermon on the Mound. (laughs) So I was saying, well, I've been to the Sea of Galilee, and actually that hill, it kind of looked, I'm from the mountains, And it does kind of look like a mound. It's not like a huge mountain. If you've ever been to the Sea of Galilee and looked out from the center of the mountain, it's not really high, but it's beautiful. He was looking over this wonderfully beautiful scene of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is not a new law or standard that we have to reach to be accepted by God. And often we see it that way. In fact, there have been interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount that this is actually for just the Jews and not for Christians because it is so incredibly high. He's making the standard really high. But those who have been saved by Jesus, Jesus who fulfilled the law, will strive to be people who reflect the character of God in our daily lives. And through his spirit, he enables us to live a very different life that we could not live before.
So uh, citizens of the kingdom, you know, the six transformations of a disciple, if you've ever heard those. Uh, how, what should a citizen look like? Our lives should be, our hearts should be transformed by the Spirit. There should be a supernatural change in our lives. We should have the mind of Christ. There should be a transformation of the way we think. There should be a transformation of our affections for God and the things of God, things that we didn't have an affection for before. We should have transformed relationships, our neighbors and other believers. We should love our neighbors as ourselves. Uh, We should have a transformed will to hear and obey, where before we met Christ, we may have wanted to do good things, but just found ourselves incapable. But through his spirit and the transformation that happens, we should have a will to hear and to obey. And then a transformed purpose, a bigger vision, a bigger purpose than we've had before. The great commission to reach all the nations and see them come into the bride, to see them come into the body of Christ. So, we're going to go on to Matthew 7 through, 11, 7 through 11. Ask, seek, and knock. And it says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, as we look at that first part of verse 7a, ask and it will be given to you. Uh, now, sometimes people think this is like a blank check. Uh, so, you know, pay to, do you guys know what a check is? I, I sometimes forget. Okay, so for Americans, we used, we used to use checks. This is like an ancient form of a de- debit card. For those of you who are too young or have never seen this, it's like a debit card. Uh, you actually have money in the bank, but you don't carry it around with you. Instead, you had this big checkbook, and you were supposed to write out checks and you know, give that as cash, and then you were supposed to record it and let yourself know how much money you had in the bank. Most of us never did that, and sometimes we wrote checks for money we did not have. It was a bad practice, but... This is, people used to sometimes, uh, if they trusted you and there was something important, but they, they didn't know how much it was going to cost right now and they weren't going to see you when they needed to pay you for it, so they would give you a blank check. It would have your name on it, it would have a lot of information on it, but it would not have the amount or the date. So the question is here, when Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you, is he giving you a blank check? He's saying whenever you need it, whatever you want it for, even if it's not important, just turn in the check in my name, and I'm going to give it to you. There are a lot of people that interpret this that way. But we need to be aware, especially the health and wealth gospel interpretations of this. Um, They view Jesus' name as sort of like a magic incantation, like Harry Potter, you know? Just say the right thing in Jesus' name, you're going to get what you want. And sometimes they even have in, in uh, ways they say this. Like, it, it can't just be in Jesus' name. It has to be in Jesus' name. You know, there's this cultural um, way of saying it that you have to say just right in order for the faith power to work through you. Or they see Jesus as kind of like the genie in the bottle. You know, you, you rub the bottle and the genie comes out and he says, you got three wishes. Ask carefully because you only have three wishes. This is not what Jesus is saying here. He's not the genie in the bottle. He's not telling us we have some kind of 
magic incantation. Uh, We need to look at Scripture to interpret Scripture. And what Scripture says on this is, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, not even in us. He said, ask what you want so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. When you ask it in his name, you're asking it in his will and for the glory of the Father through the Son. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. These are good works that he wants us to do. So that whatever your father, whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you if, there's an if, it's a conditional clause. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So there is a clause there, if, if you abide in me. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Are we talking about Pharisees? Are we supposed to obey the commands like the Pharisees? I don't think that's what's being said here. But I think there is a sense where if you're not living a life that's holy with God's kingdom in mind, why should he give us what we ask for? It will not glorify him or his son. First uh, John five fourteen through fifteen, and this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, again a conditional clause, He hears us, and if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. So again, there's a clause here; it has to be according to His will. And then lastly, James 4, 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You know, in your prayer life right now, are you asking God for things? And if you are, what are you asking for and why? Have you ever thought through those questions? When you're in prayer, what are you asking for and why? Often we just ask for anything and everything. And, you know, that's not a bad thing to do, but it is good to step back and think sometimes, what should I be asking for and how should I be asking for it? There's a, there's a really famous song right now, a really good song out. Uh, uh, it's called Waktu Tuhan. It's in Bahasa Indonesia. It's, a lot of the Indonesian churches are using it. But they have one phrase that I, I really struggle with. Um, and this song's kind of based off Romans 8, 28. Uh, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And then the deer in the song is basically saying, anything that happens, God, I know that you are going to use it for good, for me. It uses the word antuku, for me. I think they are missing something in that phrase. I think the rest of the song is great, but I think that one little phrase is problematic. A lot of times we see Christianity as individual, an individual personal relationship with Christ, which there is an aspect of that. But I don't think this verse is emphasizing that. I think he's talking about 
for those who are those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, the church, the body of Christ. I think there's a corporate nature to the kingdom where we're all in this together. And as on any team, sometimes we take something for the team that's maybe not pleasant for us for the good of the whole team. So I think in this verse, basically what he's saying is all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But that doesn't mean in this life everything works out well for you. If we think of the disciples, all of them killed in persecution. Uh, if we look at many people in the, the, the scriptures, they suffered. Paul and his, and his travels, he suffered. In fact, when he came to Christ, um, God said to Ananias, who was supposed to go and baptize him, he said, he's going to see how much he must suffer for my name, for the good of the kingdom. Sometimes the good that we're talking about here is something we might receive in the future in the kingdom. I, I mean, the kingdom is here already, but in the future after judgment day and the new heaven and the new earth, that might be where we're really going to see all that good really working for us personally, but in this life, sometimes hard things happen. We need to remember when we ask that keep God's kingdom and glory in mind and avoid asking with wrong motives for our own pleasures. And then in 7b, it says, seek and you will find. And seek connects prayer to responsible action. That it's not just a passive, and prayer should not just be passive, but we should be acting on the things we're praying for. So, seek first the kingdom. Uh, that was earlier in chapter 6. We need to know the difference between wants and needs when we're seeking God's kingdom. Sometimes our wants are really good education, the best education. A really nice house, a really successful job, nice cars, maybe two, um, entertainment, movies, uh, music, maybe vacations. Uh, we want the best. We want success. A lot of times we're looking for retirement. A lot of times people are working towards retirement. They're trying to get enough of a nest egg to then retire. These are all wants. These are not needs. I mean, we do need housing. We do need food. We do need health. Okay, so there's some truth to that. But these are not the things that we often are seeking for. Uh, in this congregation, we are a fairly affluent congregation. Many times, most of us, we have our needs met already way, way long time ago. Now, often, we're working for wants, and we need to be careful with that. That's not always bad, but there can be almost idolatry in that when we've gone beyond our needs, and now we're only working for our wants. Uh, Matthew six thirty-one through 33 says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So we need to make sure when we're seeking, we're seeking something beyond just our needs. God wants, this is not a call to mediocrity or laziness. And I think some people, when they read this verse, they think it's a call to laziness that, okay, I can sit around and all my needs are going to be provided, God's promised, or that I don't have to strive for the best, that Jesus is actually talking against that. I don't think so. I think he's still saying, I want you to be the best person you can be. I want you to be successful in life. 
but it's a call to reorganize your priorities of what it means to be successful. What does he really want you to do in your life? Is it a successful business? It may be, because you can impact the kingdom with a successful business. But maybe he's asking you to take your business skills and move over into the world of ministry full-time. There are all kinds of ways this could work, but this is a call to reorganize our priorities. We need to seek wisdom. Uh, James 1 through 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. I think we all lack wisdom in many areas of our life, and we always need to be seeking that. Uh, Proverbs 2, 1 through 5, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search search for it as for a hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. We need to be seeking God's wisdom so that we know what to ask for, so that we know what our priorities should be and how we should be using this. Now, when we think about King Solomon, he was given great wisdom. He was also given education. He had, his father made sure he was well-educated. He had a wisdom from God of sorts. He had money. It says they didn't even count silver anymore during his days because it was so plentiful. It was like water. So they counted gold, but silver, he had so much of that they didn't even count it. He had power. He expanded the kingdoms to its limits. He had fame. He was famous outside of the borders of Israel. And he had women, 700 and something women, plus concubines, 700 and something wives, plus concubines. So this man had it all. But yet, although he started seeking God's kingdom in the beginning, God's kingdom and glory, he ends up seeking his own personal kingdom and glory. At the end, God tells him he's going to split the kingdom because of Solomon's disobedience. He's following other gods. Uh, But he says, I won't do it in your time. I'll do it in the time of your son. And Solomon basically goes, okay. It's going to happen to my son, not to me. And he's okay with that. So he's very much changed from the beginning. In the end, in Ecclesiastes 1-2, he says, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Or basically in the actual translation, it's smoke, smoke, all is smoke. I can't grab a hold to anything. It's all disappearing. It's just not worth the price he paid for it. We need to be careful what we wish for. You know, we may wish for power, fame, success. These things can be empty in the end. They can be like smoke, can't be grabbed a hold of. So we need to remember when seeking God that we need to make a distinction between needs and wants. What are the needs in your life? What are the wants in your life? I was sitting, when I was putting this together, I was sitting and thinking, I have so much more than what I need. I was sitting around just looking at my house and my kids and everything around us thinking we're, we're healthy, we have enough, more than enough money to eat, more than enough money to do the things we need. Now, what am I asking for? I want to seek the nations. I want to see, see the nations come to Christ. I think that's a God-given vision for the church, for all of us. We need to be reaching out. We need to be using these things to reach out to the nations. We need to trust God to provide for our needs. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. 
He owns everything. He can give us riches, but it may not be what we need, and it may not glorify his kingdom. We need to seek God's kingdom and wisdom above all else, not trusting in our own wisdom. Verse 7c says, knock, and it will be open to you. I tried to think of a good knock-knock joke to go with this, but I couldn't find anything that quite fit. In Matthew 15, 22 through 28, uh, Jesus is talking to this Canaanite woman. So this is during his ministry in the time where he's focusing on the Jews, but this Canaanite woman comes to him, and it says, Behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely, severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So he basically insults her here. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was instantly healed. Now, I don't really think Jesus was meaning to, in, to insult her, but I think this is, she knew this is what the Jews thought of her, that she was a dog. And she knew that Jews did not associate with Canaanites. And Jesus is playing off that culture, saying, do you really have faith in me? I'm a Jew. You know, there's some racism going on between us. Do you really do you really think I'm capable of doing what you ask? And she's persistent, trusting in Jesus' goodness. He, he's actually walking in the area that's not a Jewish area. And she knows he's doing things. He's been healing some people in that area. So she trusts his goodness. And she's persistent. When we pray, we need to be persistent. God wants us to be persistent. Jesus is the only door. John 10, 7 through 9. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So Jesus is the only way. I know there are a lot of theologies out there that would say, yeah, Jesus is a way, but there might be other ways to God. But Jesus is pretty clearly saying, knock on my door. And I'll open it to you, but my door really is the only door that will get you to salvation and really a transformed life in this life. There is salvation only through Jesus. Uh, John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is like the ark uh, on the day when the flood came and Noah and his family got into the ark, uh, the New Testament says that he had been preaching to the crowd that, that Noah had actually tried to reach out and warn them and say, this is, this is it. The ark, if you don't get on here, you're going to be destroyed. And when the flood came, it was only Noah and his family. In the same way, Jesus is like that ark. He is the only way. Uh, Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when we're talking about asking, seeking, and knocking, sometimes we think of knocking as a one-time deal. 
We knock on the door, the door of salvation. We open our heart to God, more like he opens our heart to him. Uh, we, he answers the door. We walk through that door. But in a sense, salvation is already and not yet. In other, in other words, we already have eternal salvation. If, if you've come to Christ, there is eternal salvation. But Paul talks about working out our salvation in fearing trembling. And what that basically means is this. Um, salvation is already, but it is not complete in us. Uh, the Bible says, he who began a good work in us will see it to completion. That's a paraphrase, not a direct quote. I can't remember how the quote actually goes. But the point is, it's a process of every day knocking on that door, renewing our faith, so to speak, and being transformed again for a new day. And I'm not talking about Jesus dying on the cross again and again or some, something like that, but our salvation is in process. We are being sanctified. We are being changed to be more like Jesus. Knocking on that door, that persistence should be day by day. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. So, through Jesus, the high priest, we have access to the Father when we pray. When Jesus died, the temple curtain split, and to the Holy of Holies, we don't need a priest to bring us into God's presence. Jesus does that for us. He is our high priest, and he is God himself. Uh, last night, we were, we, I was talking with someone. I was sharing my faith with someone, and uh, she was saying, why would, you know, I believe, she had rejected her former religion, but she had accepted a higher power, she said. She was uh, involved in Narcotics Anonymous, and they, they teach a, a higher power. She's saying, I've accepted this higher power, and I'm okay with that. Why would I need Jesus? I said, because Jesus came, and he lived like us. He was God who came down from the mountain to us so that we didn't have to go up that mountain. He understands you. Because he has been tempted as we have. Because he's been tempted, he understands us. We can come before that throne to Jesus with confidence, knowing that what we ask, he has some understanding of. He's not just some impersonal God out there. And when we ask, he goes, oh, you know, I don't really know why you're asking, but sure, I'll give it to you. He knows. Jesus knows, and he's given us access to the heart of God. There's a parable of the friend at night, um, Luke 11, 5 through 9. And he said to them, which of you has a friend? And will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, let me, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, Yet because of his impudence, or some translations say because of his persistence, he will rise and give him what he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. 
So this is where Jesus quotes that verse again in what's called the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus often, when he's preaching, he, says, he does what all of us preachers do. He, when he's in front of one crowd, he says the same thing in slightly one way, and another crowd, he says things in slightly other way. But he's still using that same phrase at the end. So he's saying, be persistent. Be persistent in, in prayer. God uses these things, God uses hardships in our lives, and he uses prayer as a way to build up our faith and build up our persistence. Unlike the friend, God wants to open the door to us, but perseverance is important. So we need to remember, we need to be persistent in seeking God's kingdom. Jesus is the door to the kingdom, and Jesus is the only way to salvation. And we see that God is trustworthy. Uh, and verse 9 through 11, it says, Or which, of, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks, of a, asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good, good things to those who ask of him? You know, back in those days, fish and bread were necessities in the ancient world. Uh, they were... Uh, the substance that most people lived off of. They didn't have a variety of food, and these were the main substances they lived off of. When I was a kid, my dad, uh, he, my dad was a little bit of a rough guy. He'd come out of the swamps, like that story before, um, but he was also funny sometimes. And so my dad, one day he came up to me, and I don't know why he did this. I can't remember the circumstances, but he had a deck of cards. And my dad sometimes played cards with us, uh, sometimes didn't. Uh, it wasn't often, though. So when he wanted to play a game with me, I was super excited. Yes, my dad wants to spend time with me. So he said, hey, I've got this new game I want you to learn. It's called 52-Card Pickup. You want to play? Yes, Dad, I want to play. Yes, this is fun. Okay, now, we were Baptist, and we weren't supposed to be playing cards. So that should have been the first thing I should have realized, that Baptists don't play cards. It's kind of a sin for them. Anyway, so he gives me the cards. He said, take out the jokers. So I go, and I take out the jokers. He said, count the, count the cards. So without the joker, 52 cards. He said, okay, give them back to me. I said, yeah, gave them back to you. He said, now watch this. Watch close. Are you ready? I said, yeah. Goes, Throws them up in the air, and they all come fluttering down. He said, there are 52 of them. Pick them up. I went, oh, that's not a fun game. <laughs> what are you doing? Uh, so anyway, I picked up the cards. Uh, you know, and being, being the much more gentle and loving dad I am to my children, um, when they came of age, my oldest son, I one day had a deck of cards in my hand, and I said, hey, Nate, you want to play a game? <laughs> and so he played the game, and he was a little disappointed at the end. But when my daughter became of age, my son said, hey, Dad, she hasn't played 52-card pickup. And so she got to play, and then she brought the cards to me when her brother was of age. <laughs> and I'm afraid maybe my kids at Verity may have taught your kids some, some bad tricks. But God is not playing a game of 52-card pickup with us, okay? God doesn't have any dirty tricks up his sleeve. He wants to give us good things. Uh, he doesn't want to, to pull the rug out from under us, so to speak, when we're happy and we're excited about something. Another time, just one more story about that. Uh, my dad, one day, he brought me a persimmon. You guys know what a persimmon is? It's a, it's a type of fruit. I don't know if you have it here, but we had it in America. But this one was green, but I didn't know it. And he gave me that persimmon. And again, I thought, oh, my dad's giving me a gift. Great. And I put it in my mouth. And within a nanosecond, it sucked every single drop of moisture out of my mouth. I could not open my mouth. I went, 
my lips literally went into a pucker, and for about five minutes, I could not open my mouth. I thought I was dying. I, I was crying. I was like, I was trying to say, Dad, help me, but I couldn't say anything. My mouth was stuck tight. God is also not offering us green persimmons. God is offering us good things. I'd, ha- I'd like to say I didn't do that one to my son too, but I would be lying. Okay, God wants to give us salvation freely, not earned, but results. It's something we don't earn, but it's resu- the result. it results in a life of good work. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God wants to give us the gift of salvation, and we can't get that gift by working our way to it, but when he gives it to us, it changes us, and then we want to do those good things, and we're empowered through his spirit to do those good things. God wants us to have an abundant life. In the Old Testament, when you saw grapes, it meant there were wine. It means times were good. When you saw olives, it meant there were olive oil. There was olive oil for cooking. Things were good. It was a good time. Uh, grapes and olive oil symbols abundance in the Old Testament. God's people were called olive trees and grapevines, symbolizing that God wanted to bless Israel and bless the nations through Israel. In John 10, 9 through 10, it says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you may have it abundantly. Now, here's where, the, again, some of the health and wealth gospel gets it wrong. When they think of abundance, they think of the wrong things. They think of worldly success, large houses, nice cars, um, things of that sort. But when we're talking about abundance here, we're talking relational. We're talking relational, and yes, our needs are going to be provided, but also just uh, uh, relationships that further the kingdom of God. We're not talking material things here. So we need to remember that we can trust God's character. He's not giving us green persimmons. He's not playing 52-card pickup. God wants to give us salvation freely. He doesn't make us work for it. And God wants us to truly have an abundant life, a life in the Spirit, a life that looks like Jesus' life, a life of sacrifice. You know, that verse that says, um, If anyone comes after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me daily. And verses that say, anyone who wants to keep his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he will gain eternal life. God wants us to have an abundant life, but we might need to flip our idea or change our, our idea of what that actually means. So, when asking, keep God's kingdom and glory in mind. Ask Avoid asking with wrong motives for our own pleasures. When we're seeking, make a distinction between needs and wants. There's a big difference. Trust God to provide for our needs and seek God's kingdom and wisdom above all else. When knocking, we need to be persistent in seeking God's kingdom. Jesus is the door to the kingdom, and Jesus is the only way to salvation. And God is trustworthy. We can trust God's character. God wants to give us salvation freely, and God wants us to have a truly abundant life. So, in your own life, what are you asking for? When you pray, think back through your last week. What did you pray? 
Are you asking for the right things and with the right motive? You know, I was looking back, and uh, as I was putting this sermon together, I was like, man, it's been a busy week. I haven't been praying for much of anything, definitely nothing of value. And I started thinking about how I need to switch up my prayer life and start asking for the right things in the right way and asking persistently. I am not, uh, I'm not a great prayer. I'm not one of those great prayer warriors, but it's something that I need to work on developing in my life. Are you seeking God's kingdom first above all else? Are your basic needs already met? Is your main focus on things of God? Are you still seeking worldly success and finances? When is enough enough? It's always the question, when's enough enough really for us? Are you persistently knocking on the door and trusting Jesus to not only freely give you salvation, but to transform your life and give you renewed focus and purpose? We need a renewed focus and purpose. Where do you stand with God right now on these issues? Uh, Is it time for a change in your priorities, in your lifestyle, or your faith? Let's pray. Lord God, we know that when we ask in your name, according to your will, with your kingdom in mind, that you will provide. You've promised there's a harvest from the nations. You've promised that we can live a life that's pleasing to you. We can live a life that It's good for our neighbors and our communities. We can help to build the world around us to be a better place, a more spiritual place, a place where uh, your kingdom reigns, Lord. We pray that you would use us as we seek you, as we seek you daily. We pray that we would seek with humility, that we would seek with the desire to see your kingdom and your glory come and not our own, Lord. And we pray as we knock, we would do it daily and persistently and that you would open the door as every time we come to prayer, you would open that door with big arms open wide and take us in with loving arms. We know that you have experienced everything that we've experienced and that you did not sin, you did not give into temptation. Help us to avoid those temptations and to truly reflect the character of citizens of the kingdom. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.